You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Beginning in verse 8 of chapter 6, let me read. Follow along with me. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? Stephen said, Brothers, fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac, circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise grew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race, and forced our fathers to expose their infants, that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, 
and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling, tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning. I've come down to deliver them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. They made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifice during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephim, the images that you made to worship, and I will send into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God, and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest 
Did my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of God for the people of God. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. I stand before you. For people this morning, uh, just recognize, Father, that not just I, but each of us are fully incapable of hearing your word and understanding your word, bringing it to apply on our hearts and lives, weren't for the presence and the power of your spirit. So God, I ask that your spirit would be present, powerful, that you would speak to us, that you would comfort and challenge, so that you would reveal places in our hearts where we have been rebellious and sinful. Remind us of the cross of Jesus. Help us, Father, to draw near to you as you draw near to us. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. What he said? Amen. Hey, before, um, before we dive into this whole story, um, the story of the church's first martyr, right, Stephen, uh, need to take a few moments. I want to address last week's sermon just for a moment. Think I feel like that's important. Uh, if you were here last week, uh, last week's sermon was on Acts six uh, one through seven, and and I would say you know I, I'm sure I think most preachers probably struggle a little bit with uh, um, wondering if uh, if a sermon uh, feels faithful, effective, or helpful. And I'm definitely not immune to those kinds of questions at times, but I don't typically walk out of here on a Sunday morning like fist bumping Jesus as we walk out or anything like that. It's not that. I also don't walk out of here like oh man that sucked. I wish I could do that again. I, I'm usually not there. Um, when I walk out of the pulpit, I go home, and I'm pretty tired, and I'm ready for a good holy nap on a Sunday, and that's a good thing. But I will tell you this. I, I usually am fairly sensitive to knowing when I completely miss the mark, and I feel like last week was one of those. Um, my reason for saying that is, um, while, while I, I, many of you have said, hey, that was really helpful, uh, I just want to say the main point of the text from last week was not uh, unresolved conflict. Uh, while it's part of the story and part of the text, that was not the main point. The main point of the text, yes, there was conflict. The main point of the text was that God gives good leaders to the church so the church can be cared for. And, and that probably would have been a more faithful exposition of the text. And so while I'm thankful that, that God does what he does through weak people and uh, weak people like me and still use that sermon to be helpful to you guys, I would say if I had a do-over, I would re-preach the sermon and I would focus more on what the point of the text 
is, which is the selection and installation of qualified leaders who would serve the growing needs of the church, and one of those needs would be resolving conflict. And, and in that point of that message, that's where I would have talked about resolving conflict, and it still would have been helpful in that way. Um, but I just think it's important for me to say that to you guys, um, because my expectation is that as this church grows, that we would grow disciples who expect faithful exposition of God's word and the meaning of the text. And so um, with, with that said, um, uh, even though conflict was part of the story, um, I would have focused on God giving faithful leaders to the church. And that's what he does. He gives gifts of leaders to churches who might be cared for, so we might care for one another. And one of the leaders that God gave to the church last week in that text was Stephen. Okay, And that's our segue into this week. He's, he's basically the main focus, so to speak, of, he's the main character of the text this week. Now, I will let you know, if you're interested in reading like five chapters of commentary that are really helpful um, for this massive section of text, um, if you get emails from our church, you'll probably get some notes from this sermon. And in the bottom of the footnotes, you'd find two commentaries noted, one from Kent Hughes, another one from a guy named Derek Thomas. Both of those guys did such fine work uh, on the text. Uh, I would encourage you, if you don't have those commentaries, go buy them. Uh, I just think they're really, really good to have on your shelf uh, for just going more in-depth in the study. The bottom line here is Stephen is the main figure in the text. Obviously, he's pointing to Jesus, he's pointing to the Redeemer, he's pointing to God all the way through, right? He's on trial for speaking the truth. That's really what's happening. Stephen was a man uh, who was selected last week um, to serve the needs of the growing congregation in Jerusalem, right? He was a, um, he was a Greek-speaking Jew. He was part of a Greek-speaking um, synagogue as well. Um, we know that the early church still attended synagogues and attended the temple throughout uh, the earlier years as the church began in Jerusalem. We know from the text that uh, Stephen was a man that was full of faith, right? It's full of the Holy Spirit, the text tells us. He uh, was full of grace and power. Kind of reminds you of what was said about Jesus, that he was full of grace and truth. Uh, we know that he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This is verses 5 and 8 of the text. Kind of teaches us those things about Stephen. But despite his qualifications for ministry, there were some people who could not stand him, right? They couldn't stand him because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus. That's, that's the main point. And the question is, what happens when unbelievers um, want to shut up those who believe? Um, what do they do when a believer won't shut up about Jesus? And the typical mode of operating in these kinds of circumstances all throughout the scriptures and then even all throughout church history, you can read all sorts of accounts like this, what happens is they typically arrest that believer on a set of trumped up charges so that they can face the death penalty. That's, that's the pattern. happens over and over and over again. still happens today in some parts of the world. So that's the first thing we see as Stephen gets arrested, right? Verses 9 through 10 of chapter 6, it looks like, it appears as though there are some people in Stephen's synagogue that were upset with him, right? Why? But Luke tells us they were upset with him because they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking, right? As they were debating with him, they couldn't withstand the wisdom and the power of the Spirit by whom he was speaking. Bottom line is they couldn't win. They couldn't win the argument. 
couldn't win the fight. That was what was going on. Stephen's newfound uh, enemies, they found a way to arrest him, as the text tells us. And they do this by getting some people to level some false accusations against him. What were the accusations? When you're looking at the text, the accusations seem pretty basic and simple, and it's easy to kind of read past them. But the accusations were this, that he was blaspheming both Moses and God. And not only that, but he was preaching that the temple was going to be destroyed by Jesus that the Mosaic law needed to be changed. These are the things that they accused him of. Now, it's important to notice the basis of those accusations against him. Namely, the basis was that he was supposedly blaspheming God, he was blaspheming God's prophet Moses, he was blaspheming God's temple, and he was even blaspheming God's law, not to mention that he was supposedly committing all of this blasphemy in the name of Jesus. Now think about the council that he's standing in front of at this very moment when they arrest him. This very council that Stephen is being accused in front of is the very same council with the very same high priest that had previously found Jesus guilty of what? Blasphemy. And they had also inflicted the death penalty upon Jesus. You know that. Stephen's Enemies, the council in front of him, are the ones who literally were responsible for murdering Jesus. Now, I think Stephen would have known this the moment he stand in front of him. He would have recognized them, right? He knew who his accusers were. He knew who this council was. There was a ring in his ear from a, maybe a few years ago, and he heard the very same accusations being slung across the room at his Savior, Jesus. So I think that Stephen would have known that his time was limited. I think Stephen knew that he was about to die, especially after hearing the gravity of the false accusations against him. When you think about this, in Israelite history, okay, the name of God, God's prophets, especially Moses, very special man, the temple, God's law, these were things that you don't mess with. The Israelites had gone through literal hell throughout the centuries to preserve these very things. And, and for them, you don't mess with those. And let's not forget, um, again, that Stephen is doing all of this, quote-unquote, blasphemy in the name of the one whom this very council had already murdered on a cross as a blasphemer a few years ago. So let's just say that the deck was probably stacked against Stephen, right? Put yourself in his shoes. What do you do? What do you do when you know your moment of death is right around the corner? Stephen preaches a sermon. That's what he does. <clears throat> That's the next portion of the text. And it's a significant portion of the text for us this morning. We're going to do our best to just crank our way through it and try to make some highlights of what seems important. Preaches a sermon in verses uh, 15 of chapter 6 all the way through verse 53 of chapter 7. He preaches what some have called probably one of the best sermons in all of Scripture. In these 54 verses, Stephen takes his accusers and us now on a journey through the Old Testament. Oh, press pause for a quick second and take a little bit of time and just say, when you hear somebody say the Old Testament doesn't mean anything today, when you hear somebody say you should unhitch yourself from the Old Testament, all those crazy wild things, 
those are guys you ought not to listen to. As the Old Testament was what the apostles preached. The Old Testament was what Jesus preached. And there's a reason the Old Testament is so important. And this is one of those stellar times where you see in the New Testament how important it is to know your Old Testament scriptures. As in 54 verses, Stephen takes us on a journey through the Old Testament. He shows us how all, all of the prized religious heritage in Israel had been misunderstood and had actually been turned into idolatry. Rather than worshiping the King of Kings, the God of the universe, the Creator, the resurrected Jesus, rather than worshiping God, Israel was actually guilty of worshiping their religious heritage. Short order, with his face glowing like the face of an angel, according to verse 15. You think about that, right? Jesus, maybe, you know, in the transfiguration, or maybe Moses, even, you know, coming down from Mount Sinai. These are times when you kind of think about somebody's glowing. Um, I mean, if somebody's face glows, what does that look like? It's like a sci-fi movie, right? His face is glowing. Stephen proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that Israel's relationship with God was never meant to revolve around things like special people, special places, special buildings, special laws. Israel's relationship with God was meant to revolve around God's work in redeeming them from the very presence and the power and the penalty of their sin. And in reality, what Israel and her leaders had done, the ones who made up this council especially that Stephen was standing in front of, is that they were actually the ones who were guilty of the very blasphemy that they were accusing Stephen of. I, I think in today's terms, I think that's called gaslighting, right? You're accusing somebody else of what you're actually wrong for, you're actually guilty of. You look at verses 1 through 8 in chapter 7, Stephen points out, he begins with Abraham, right? Famous character, Abraham. Points out that Abraham had walked in close, obedient relationship with God as a redeemer. And he did this regardless of whatever land he traveled through. You see, land is not so special. It doesn't matter where you live. And it was to Abraham that God gave the gift of circumcision we learn from that. Very simply, we, we, we learn what it means to be separated from the ways of the world that we travel through. We're just sojourners, right? We're just passing through this place. We ain't setting up shop here for very long. All this is going to go away one day, right? The place we're headed to is heaven. It doesn't matter what nation you live in, what denomination you're part of, what church building looks like. None of that matters. It matters is where you're headed on the day that you die. God gave Abraham the gift of circumcision. We learn from that gift that we are to be separated from the ways of the world. And, and in that, also united to God in obedient faith, regardless of where you live, regardless of whom you're enslaved to. The promised land was definitely important, right? And this is part of the promise that Abraham had received. It was definitely important because it pointed God's people to the hope of heaven. 
Now, the greater promise here is that God is the one who will provide redemption from slavery to Egypt some 400 years later in a foreshadowing of what God does for us as he redeems us from our sin. And it fills us with his spirit so that we might look forward to our eternal promised land. See, redemption was was always the plan. Redemption is the fine thread that runs throughout the Old Testament and the New. And the centerpiece of that fine thread message is simply the cross of Jesus. And then the further out point is the hope that we have in heaven. Redemption was always the main point. A redeemer was always meant to be the main point of Israel's obedient worship to God. And for us. Now, verses 9 through 16, even reminds his audience of a man named Joseph. You know Joseph, right? <coughs> My name's Joseph. I'm not talking about me. Remember Joseph had a coat of many colors. He had 11 brothers. All 12 of them would later become the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, right? <coughs> Joseph's 11 brothers did what? They, they turned Joseph over to the Egyptian pharaoh because they were jealous of him. Thus, continuing a a long history of using, abusing, and rejecting the redeemers and the leaders and the prophets that God sent to Israel. That's the pattern that's happening. That's the reason that Stephen is telling this story. Verse 17 through 45, Stephen turns his full attention to one of the most historical figures in all of Israel's history after Joseph. Who would that be? the next guy, Moses, right? He actually spends most significant time on Moses. <clears throat> Some of that could be because that was part of the accusation against him, right? Moses grew up in Egypt <clears throat> long after Joseph's death. We know that the Pharaoh tried to exterminate the Israelites. They were multiplying like weeds. Partial fulfillment of the promise that God had given to Abraham, right? Um, your, 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 uh, your people down the line here, um, they're, they're going to they're gonna be like the numbers of the sands on the beach, stars in the sky, going to outnumber all those. That's how your family's going to grow. And here it's happening, multiplying by like weeds. The Egyptian pharaoh wants to try to exterminate them. He tries to do that by killing their sons, right? If you've ever been in kids' church, you, you've probably heard the story. you ever read the Bible, you've probably read it. But and Moses gets put in a little basket sails on down the river, winds up uh, getting spared by God. The Pharaoh's daughter picks him up, raises him, be a wise, knowledgeable young man, right? <coughs> I think the text even tells us that, <clears throat> that he was beautiful to God, which is a beautiful word to think about. The man was beautiful to God. I don't know if we have any pretty boys in the room, but if we are, there's your text. Sound like Moses. <laughs> Verses 23 through 29, Stephen reminds the council that at a ripe age of like 40 years old, Moses decides to visit his Israelite brothers, right? And when he makes that visit, he winds up murdering an Egyptian um, who, who's like picking on one of his brothers as he tries to defend uh, one of the men of Israel. And he winds up killing that Egyptian, which then leads to Moses being rejected by his own people and becoming an exile in the desert for 40 more years. If you look at 
that's close. It's kind of written that way. Stephen kind of broke it down in 40-year chunks. Now he's in exile in the desert for 40 more years. And, and the implication here, as you're reading that and studying that and thinking about the storyline, this storyline of redemptive history, right? <clears throat> the implication here, uh, I think, are, are, are vital to Stephen's sermon. Because what, what he's doing is he's implying that Israel has always rejected her saviors, her prophets, her salvation. Like this truth that, that Israel consistently rejected the redeemers that God sent them. It's basically further proven when Stephen reminds his accusers of how God interacted with Moses in exile. Verse 30-33, Stephen reminds his accusers that God literally spoke with Moses in the wilderness through the burning bush. You ever seen that old, I think it's the Old Testament movie? Um, ancient, like made in the 70s. I was born in the 70s, so I guess that makes me ancient. <clears throat> I think it was in the 70s, but I can't remember the actor's names, but it's kind of, a, it's kind of an iconic movie, but um, that depiction of the burning bush um, always gets my attention. Like, who would that be? Be wandering around in the desert, man. Like, you, you think you tried to do something good. You think you tried to do something godly, right? And, and all the people you're trying to lead and, and rescue, so to speak, just kind of banish you um, because you killed one of their oppressors. And, then, and, and so you're wondering for 40 years, like, what's going on here? And then and you even wonder, like, am I even saved? Do I know God? And then God speaks to you from a burning bush. Like, how whack is that? been a nutty moment. This is where God spoke with Moses in the wilderness through the burning bush. Notice that it uh, wasn't in the temple. I don't think it was in the promised land either. This is a place where Moses needed to remove his sandals because he was standing on holy ground in God's presence. That, that is the prelude to understanding that God cannot be refined to a special place like the temple in Jerusalem in the promised land. On the contrary, God can be found and worshipped wherever His people humbly seek His presence, right? And with all those implications in the water, Stephen continues, verses 34 through 41. He continues by reminding his audience that even though God sent Moses to be Israel's redeemer, they actually rejected him despite the signs, despite the wonders that he performed. And despite the Mosaic law that he actually received from God, that he then gave to Israel... And they did this just like all of humanity rejected God. Just like all of humanity has always rejected God and looked for new gods to worship, just like the golden calf that they built with their own hands. Do we humans always uh, have an issue with wanting to take some of the credit for our salvation, don't we? I mean, I'll tell you one of the, one of the lowest hanging ways that we do it is, Man, I prayed the sinner's prayer at that one camp. And then I prayed it 50 more times over the next 50 years. Well, it wasn't 50 years, but I went 50 times to kids' camp, right? And went to multiple camps every year. I prayed the sinner's prayer every year so I could rededicate my life. I did that. And I like to take some of the credit for our salvation. Uh, we think that the place that we worship will make us more acceptable to God. Uh, we think sometimes that the country we live in is specially blessed by God. We love our moral codes. We enjoy our denominational distinctives. My fear, my fear as I study this and think about it, is that we're no different than Israel oftentimes. 
that Stephen would maybe, if he were standing here today, would say the same thing to us as he said to them in verse 42 when he said, hey, God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. Oh, which is not to say that they were worshiping God, it's to say that they were worshiping demons. Even though they had actually experienced God's powerful, redeeming, conquering presence as they were taken out of Egypt, as they wandered around in the wilderness with a tent, as they watched God annihilate their enemies in the promised land. Even though they were experiencing all those powerful things that God was doing in their life, they still basically worshipped It's become common practice, I think, in the Western church today, oftentimes to uh, protect abusers, to shield leaders from the accountability that they actually deserve, all under this banner of building and protecting massive ministries, you know, at the expense of people's souls, all in the name of man-made religious institutions. The Israelites had built a massive religious system it was massive. It included special land, special people, special laws, and a very, very special temple. That's where you went. Is it God? Jesus didn't try to come, didn't come to try to abolish any of that. None of those things are wrong. Just as long as it's not blatantly sinful. Things in creation aren't wrong. It's just that we have a tendency to Worship the creation of our own hands rather than worshiping the creator of the creation built with hands. Jesus didn't come to abolish any of the system. He came to fulfill it. And there's there's a, a very fine difference between those two words. He didn't come to abolish. He came to fulfill, which means he came to be the main point of it all, but... Jesus was rejected. Jesus was murdered, just like all the Redeemer-like heroes throughout Israel's history, and just like the man named Stephen, whom Israel was about to murder now. <clears throat> now, before the council could regain their composure, Stephen basically hits them with his right hook, his knockout punch, right? This is what he's been driving at all along. The whole story is leading to this moment where he lands this punch in verses 45 through 53, he ends his sermon by reminding them that even David and Solomon, we know those names, right? Even David and Solomon, here's, yeah, even David and Solomon. I'll stop just for a minute. David, so you, some of you have heard me say this a few times, and there's others that would say it too, but like when we study with our children, oftentimes, and even as church families, the main point of the story of David is not that you need to go get five stones so you can knock out five things in your life. That is the stupidest way of studying the text. It's not true. <laughs> the main point of that sermon is David is very much like Jesus. And the giant is definitely Satan, sin, and death. You know who we are. And the way I understand the story, we're Israel in the background. Hiding, <laughs> you know? You look at the stories of David and Solomon. So you see how easy it is for us to get the story just a little bit off? That's what Israel did. They got the story off. Stephen says, David and Solomon, even they knew. Like, they're your heroes. Even they knew that God doesn't live in man-made houses, that 
Anybody who, who thinks that, anybody who thinks that God lives in a man-made house, as this council does that he's speaking in front of, they're nothing but a bunch of stubborn mules. Stubborn mules with hearts that are nowhere close to being circumcised in obedience to the Lord. Why? Because they always resist the Holy Spirit. They always persecute God's spokesman. Recently, betrayed and murdered Jesus. They completely disobeyed the Mosaic law that was meant to turn them to the Savior they murdered. They were more caught up in all their do's and don'ts of the law and how to do it in 50 different ways rather than saying, man, this is actually supposed to point me towards my Redeemer who has saved me, come to save me. Stephen's knockout punch is simple. Put it in our words, Israel's leaders had accused him of blasphemy when in fact they were the real blasphemers just like their forefathers. And they should turn, they should repent, they should ask God for forgiveness. I wish I could tell you that's exactly what the council did, but we all know that's not true. That's not what they did, right? What Stephen preached got him murdered. The vicious act of premeditated murder. They already had the plan. What's <coughs> the last thing that happens? Stephen gets murdered in verses 54 through 60. Luke tells us the council rose up full of hatred and rage. As they ground their teeth. I mean, how do you do that? Was it that? Like, what do you, like, like chomping at the bit or something? I grind my teeth, and it's weird. I have no idea what the, the phrase means. So I didn't study that. So if anybody wants to go look at a different commentary and find it, let me know what it means, because it's strange. <laughs> the council rolled up full of hatred, rage. That's in contrast to Stephen. So you see these two contrasting things being built. Council's full of rage and hatred, gnashing teeth, and Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit. His accusers, soon to be murderers, are dragging him out of the city. Their ears are plugged. They throw him over a cliff. They drop huge rocks on him. And in those moments, Stephen can see Jesus standing at the edge of heaven. I don't know what that moment's like. But I can tell you, more than one person over this last week said, Hey, hey, the best part of the text is when Jesus is standing in heaven. Both commentaries. More than one friend said, that's the, that's the part you got. Jesus stood at the edge of heaven. It's the only place in Scripture where it says that. Jesus is always seated at the right hand of the Father. Right now, he's standing at the edge of heaven, at the right hand of the Father. I think he's ready to welcome his good and faithful servant home. Jesus stood as Stephen took his final stand. Stephen's final words, as his murderers laid their coats at Saul's feet, were words that are echoes from the cross, were just like Jesus. Stephen asked God to receive his spirit and to forgive his murderers. And only time is going to show what his final words, um, how those final words will affect those who heard them. We know especially the man named Saul, how that affects him. I'm thinking if I'm in Saul's shoes, who later becomes Paul's, Paul, I'm thinking that that whole scene, those final words from Stephen, probably haunted Paul the rest of his life. It would have me. Might have something to do with the thorn in his flesh, possibly. 
Reality, once again, is that what Satan intends to use to destroy the church, God uses to strengthen and multiply the church's witness throughout. That's the reality of this passage. When you think about ways to apply this to your life, what we've witnessed here, uh, really, was the last day in Stephen's life, right? That one day he was happily serving widows in his church, Fairly routine ministry in the back shadows of the church family. Not a lot of glitz and glamour there. Probably not a huge paycheck either. I'm pretty sure he was probably a volunteer. Next day he gets locked into a debate with some other religious people in his local community about the importance of the law, the importance of the temple, the importance of the land, the importance of the prophets, Jesus. The entirety of all religious history at this point. He's, he's debating that. The next thing he knows he gets dragged in front of the highest religious council in the land on some false charges of blasphemy with the threat of death looming over him. And Stephen's response is basically a redemptive historical sermon that, that emphasizes how Israel historically missed the redemptive nature of its own history and then repeatedly rejected, persecuted, and even murdered. All of the Redeemer prototypes had been sent by God for Israel's good. Not to mention that they'd also ignored, twisted, the sacred laws that they had used to condemn our Savior Jesus himself. That's a summary of what we just studied. And all of that, of course, culminates in this brutal murder of young Stephen as Jesus stands on the edge of heaven to welcome his good and faithful servant into the eternal promised land that he had just preached on because of his willingness to remain faithful, a faithful witness even in the face of certain death. So, Say, man, great story, Stephen, right? Glad this is in the Bible. How does this apply? Four things I think might be good for us. Number one, know your Bible. Number one, know your Bible. Here's something that frustrates me with men in the church. Most men know football stats, but they don't know their Bibles. Most men do better selling football or soccer, right, or their job than they do Scripture. A lot of women I'll stay with It's Mother's Day. And I drew a blank, thanks to the Holy Spirit. Because I already picked a fight with the men, so not even in my notes, so I don't even know why I'm picking a fight with you guys. So, sorry, brothers. <laughs> I do think this story should challenge every one of us. I just, you know, I was just getting excited. Or <laughs> serious, that's all it is. <laughs> I can get them. <laughs> I think this story should challenge every one of us to know our Bibles, okay? Old Testament and New Testament. We should know it just as well as Stephen did. We should be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us as we testify to the personal work of Jesus. When you run into somebody that, that, that challenges you on what the Bible says, the answer should not be, hey, let me get you my pastor's number. should not be that. It should be, you know, I'm going to maybe talk to my pastor. Um, I'll get a book. I'm going to come back. I'm going to answer your questions. The only way you're going to get good answer to the questions is by studying the Bible, right? And uh, when you don't have the questions, a lot of times that's, that's one of the best times to go find the answers. Um, grow in that. Know your Bible. Number two, possess authentic faith possess authentic faith. And I think we should be challenged to think about the authenticity of our faith. Are you really a believer? Are you really a Christian? 
Uh, we're either the religious nutbags who are full of jealousy in this story and who are ready to murder those who follow Jesus, right? We may not be ready to murder them legitimately or literally, but we're either on that side of the camp or we're completely sold out for Jesus because he gave everything to redeem us from the presence of the power and the penalty of our sin, right? And he did that when he gave his life at the cross of Calvary. And then he rose up out of the grave three days later and then he ascended into heaven with a promise to return, right? If all of that is true and we know that and we believe that, and we know that Jesus set everything straight once and for all, that he's coming back to do just that. He's coming back to vanquish Satan's sin and death once and for all. Does that kind of faith reside inside of you? Does that fill you? Does that nourish you, the message of the gospel? Not just that one time when you heard the gospel and prayed the sinner's prayer at a kid's camp 50 times, but the gospel is meant to nourish you continuously. Does it? Do you possess an authentic faith? Number three, remember Jesus standing next to the right hand of the Father. If you are doing everything that you can to live your life as a witness for the power of the gospel, then you should expect to get persecuted. You should expect to get lied about. You should expect to get falsely accused. You should expect to be persecuted. You should expect that you might even die for your faith someday. You should expect that. It should come of no surprise. As you walk that witness out in your family or your friend crowd or your school or your job site, gas station, the grocery store, everywhere else you come into contact with people, remember this. That you are, when you are insulted and, and persecuted for the name of Jesus, Jesus himself may very well be standing at the edge of heaven watching over you ready to receive you home the next moment. I got a couple of thick church history books from some church history courses I just finished up. And I can tell you, all of the martyrs that I read about in the history of the church, many of them hung on this passage as they were being burned at the stake, as they refused to quit preaching, as they were being sawed in half, they had limbs being chopped off, as they watched their families die in front of them, this is the passage they know. Know that if you're ever in that situation, Jesus himself has promised to never leave you or forsake you. To always be with you and to go with you as you share the gospel wherever you go. Final piece here. Put on the character of Christ. Put on the character of Christ. Stephen was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, right? Full of wisdom, full of power, full of grace with a very winsome personality. And he even in his death, graciously asked the Lord to forgive his enemies. <clears throat> That's not my typical mode of operating. If my enemies want to throw me over a cliff and drop big rocks on me, I'm pulling out my concealed carry and taking care of business. Probably. Unless the Holy Spirit gets a hold of me in those moments. No, this is for your good. Oh, thank you, Jesus. I get stoned. Not even a good kind of stoned. That's not a good kind of stoned either. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm going to wrap this up and we're going to get done. Stephen was a man. He was full of the Holy Spirit, right? Full of wisdom, full of power, full of grace, winsome personality. 
even in death, graciously asked the Lord to forgive his enemies. The character of Jesus shined through Stephen in such a way that he stood tall for Jesus, in sharp contrast to the creeps on the council who passed his death sentence. Put on the character of Jesus. How do you do that? By being with Jesus daily, as you study his word and as you talk to him in prayer. It's as simple as that. There's simple, simple discipline. You study his word, talk to him in prayer, and spend time with God's people. In conclusion, I would say that the story of Stephen should make us think about how we would spend our final day on this earth. Most of us are not going to know when our final day is or the final moment is. But if you knew, if you knew, if you had an inkling, such as Stephen at some point, that's certainly the way that I would want to spend it. Stephen was a man who I think loved well, he served well, he witnessed faithfully, Certainly didn't back down from a deadly fight over gospel proclamation. People really liked that about him. Stephen was a man who spent time at the foot of a bloody cross. That's obvious. That's where he spent time at. He spent time in the doorway of an empty tomb. These are my favorite phrases. You hear them every week when I preach. Why? I I love these phrases because I love the visuals. And I want them to cement into my own heart and mind as well as yours. The bloody cross. There's the doorway of an empty tomb. There's the promise of the eternal promised land in heaven. That's a great way of capturing the message of the gospel and allowing it to nurture and to feed our souls. Stephen's life uh, proved those things. His ministry proved and looked forward to all those things. His preaching proved that he was sold out for all of those things. The gospel. His death definitely sealed it and proved it. My prayer for us is that our lives would model the same kind of wise and gracious, courageous, biblically knowledgeable, forgiving, spirit-filled character that Stephen possessed. Amen? Pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for our time in it this morning. Pray, Father, that you would remove anything that I said that was not of you. Help us to hear over these closing moments what you intended us to hear. Help us to respond in our hearts and minds appropriately. Thank you for loving us so well that you gave Jesus. Thank you for loving us so well that you gave a story about Stephen. We could study today, be encouraged and challenged by. Lord, help us to uh, help us to kneel at the foot of that bloody cross and look right up into the loving face of our Savior. Help us also to spend time on our knees in that doorway of that empty tomb and help us, Father, to find our hope in nothing less than the promise of eternity in heaven. This place is not our home, which means all the hardship of this life will go away one day too. Look forward to an eternity with you where there is no more mourning, no more crying, no more tears, no more sin, no more conflict, no more brokenness us to find rest in that promise once again. God, we love you. In Jesus' name. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.